The altitude is like 4,800 meters, I think, which means vomiting, headaches, nausea, dizziness, oh, and diarrhea. That's the only one I've not had. I'm on a hike, roughly 4,000 meters above sea level. This trek across the El Kokoi mountain range that I'm on has claimed the lives of countless climbers. And it would prove to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. And the only time, so far, where I've been out in the wilderness alone and really, really afraid and really scared for my life. But more on that later. You're listening to Wherever Island. Each episode is a new travel destination filled with stories about and inspired by that place. The locations are unplanned. They're just, you know, wherever I land. Today, we're in the Sierra Nevada del Cocoy in Colombia, walking El Pulpito del Diablo, or the Devil's Pulpit. The program will be broken up into two parts. Part one, fun versus fulfillment. And part two, reckless and willing endangerment. That's our show for today in the Sierra Nevada del Cocoy. As always, I am your host, Andrea Alicia Peters, a Colombian British journalist traveling and documenting this voyage across Colombia and bringing you, dear listener, along with me for the whole ride. So let's just dive right into the first part then. Fun versus fulfillment. So here's the deal. I've just summited um, what is meant to be a recreational mountain uh, to prepare for tomorrow's activity, which is summiting uh, El Pulpito del Diablo, which is like, mm, I think about 5,000 meters altitude and covered in snow, which is going to be an absolute trip. Trippy about sums up this whole expedition. The idea for this multi-day trek started offhandedly. My friend Finn mentioned a hike across some snowy mountains. And given how rare snow is here in Colombia, I said, yeah, sure, I'll come along, not thinking we'd ever actually go. Then, a few weeks later, while bored out of my mind at work, the idea of getting away going on some intrepid adventure off in the mountains became my guiding light during the dry slog of every shift. So we booked it. The trip was now only weeks away. Hey, hey, what's up? Me and my friend, Finn, send each other voice notes rather than texts uh, because we're lazy and it's easier. Uh, these are a few from before the departure. I just bought my plane tickets for Bukaramanga. I arrive on the 12th of December at 8.30am uh, and I leave on the 16th um, at 10.30pm. Yeah, just thought I'd let you know. I don't think I have to do anything else, do I? Um, I am so stressed out. I have so much work to do. And so this is one thing off my chest. The only thing is I think, do I need to buy like lots of, sh like, can I walk this thing in my trainers? Like I have no idea and I don't even have that much time to look any of it up. Like, do I need a rain jacket? Like, what is it that I need? Help me, please. 
Hello. Um, so I had a look at the photos. Uh, looks like it's going to be walking maybe near snow, if not in snow. I didn't see photo, any photos of people walking in snow. They're certainly near it, so it's going to be wet feet. Um, so you're going to have to wear like either boots or something, uh, or something that's like waterproof. Um, yeah, try and make sure you have like cold, like warm clothes and stuff, big jacket, thermals if necessary. Uh, like Willy socks. There's quite a lot of things that you have to buy if you don't have any of it. So, taking Vin's advice, which remember he's giving based on glancing at a few photos, I hit Decathlon, the low-cost sporting goods store. Oh, Finley, I just got home. I was out shopping from the time I messaged you, so 11.28, then I'm back home now and it's four. I'm not good at math, but that's like five hours in it. Anyway. I bought a pair of boots and whilst they were expensive, I really like them. Like, they're not like, they don't go over the ankle. They're just like shoes like with good grip. But apparently they're waterproof and I think they'll be perfect. They're kind of comfortable. I'm going to wear them to class tonight. So hopefully like, that will be like me breaking them in. Honestly, amazing. Um, I also bought a jumper, a puffy jacket. Like, you know, the ones everyone has. And then a waterproof jacket. So I've got, like, all my base layers covered. <laughs> I went a bit mad in decathlon. Then I bought contact lenses. Then I bought a water bottle. I've honestly spent so much money today. I think I spent about a million today. A million Colombian pesos, which is about 250 British pounds. Okay, I have the dumbest question in the world. I was under the impression that we wouldn't be hiking with our backpacks. Is that not the case? I was listening to the um, the audio from the guides in the group chat. We we're, like we're just like staying somewhere overnight, so I can bring my forty litre like no ish in it. Anyway, let me know. Zero planning went into this trip. The whole preparation process consisted of these voice notes traded back and forth. You can hear us trying to piece together what it is that we're actually going to do. And if I'm honest, I didn't understand the reality of what lay ahead until getting there. I will admit the reason there are no recordings of the ascent is because it's really high altitude and it's really difficult. You ascend very quickly and there's almost no flats. And it's just so painful. And you get headaches, you feel drowsy, you're tired. And then to add on top of all of that, you keep going up and the symptoms keep getting worse. This was taken from the first day of hiking, geared at preparing us for the next day's much more difficult hike. I should probably explain, though, what this expedition that I'm embarking on is. We are in the Sierra Nevada del Cocoy, a national park and a set of highlands within the Andes Mountains of Colombia. This area is in the northeastern part of Colombia and the nearest city is Bucaramanga. The only way to get from Bucaramanga to El Cocoy is to take a 12-hour coach from the city to the tiny, tiny village of Guican, which sits on the outskirts of the national park and is where we stayed in a local hotel. The mountain range we're hiking, the Sierra Nevada del Cocoy, is probably most famed for just how high it is. Its peaks reach above 5,400 metres, which is why despite the fact that Colombia sits pretty near the equator, this region is cold and snowy. 
5,000 meters though, it's a pretty obscure figure, right? Unless you're a geography expert. For context then, Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa, is less than 500 meters taller. So, Elkakoi's high up, but what does it look? What does it feel like? Well, its ecosystem is referred to as a paramo, which is a neotropical biome with vegetation composed mainly of giant rosette plants, shrubs, and grasses. The air masses here are consistently humid. However, remember, we're at high altitudes, so the environment is less hot and humid Amazon rainforest, and it's more constant rain, clouds, and fog. The climate matches this, with an average temperature below 10 degrees Celsius. If you're thinking, all that rain and cold sounds really miserable. I bet Alcacoy looks miserable. Well, you'd be wrong. Given the constant moisture from the wet climate and glacial rivers, the vegetation is flourishing. There are marshes and swamps, short green and yellow grass covers everything that I can see, and bushes, shrubs, and flowers all tumble over each other in attempts to reach the few rays of sunlight cast on the mountainside. If you're still not picturing exactly how the landscape looks, don't worry, I'll just upload some pictures onto the Instagram. I'd come here to walk across this mountain range and reach El Pulpito del Diablo, or the Devil's Pulpit. The trek we set out to do targeted an outcrop of rock surrounded by glaciers and snow at 5,100 metres. It seemed like the ultimate challenge of strength and determination. Also, uh, it was the only trek on offer with the tour company we chose. But before we did the great expedition to reach the Devil's Pulpit, our tour company took us to do a recreational hike of acclimatization. This is where you find me, at the summit of the smaller 3,800 meter hike, fully exhausted. So here's the deal. I've just summited um, what is meant to be a recreational mountain uh, to prepare for tomorrow's activity, which is summiting uh, El Pulpito del Diablo, which is like, mm, I think about 5,000 meters altitude and covered in snow, which is going to be an absolute trip. Um, and now that I'm at the top of this one, I'm excited for the next one. But I will admit the reason there are no recordings of the ascent is because it's really high altitude and it's really difficult. Even though this one is meant to be the recreational one, you ascend very quickly and there's almost no flats. And it's just so painful. And me and my, I'm here with a mate and he was just like, why do I do this? I don't like, I don't like heights in the sense that you get headaches, you feel drowsy, you're tired. And then to add on top of all of that, you keep going up and the symptoms keep getting worse. And he on the way up was like, it will be fulfilling. And I was like, no, it won't. Why can't I just walk in a field? Why don't people just walk in fields? What actually is the point of putting yourself through altitude sickness, mental and physical exhaustion? Why do people do this? How is it considered fun? Well, some people apparently put themselves in painful situations, uncomfortable, awkward or agonizing circumstances so that they, like a muscle, can build up a tolerance and willingness to face discomfort. 
ultimately going through life easier. An author named Julian Smith wrote a whole book about the topic called The Flinch. It was never about any single moment. It's about a habit of doing something that is hard just because the other side is better and because the next flinch is going to be easier as a result of you doing this one right. A.K.A. what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. (laughs) That there is worth in doing difficult things for the sake of it. That facing these challenging situations isn't something you should just face but actively seek out. Which brings me back to the mountains, back to my supposedly recreational hike of acclimatisation. We're on our way back from our first, our first hike, and it, the, honestly, the descent has been so painful. <laughs> the audio quality is about to get much worse. The wind's rattling against the mic. Bear with; it only lasts a few seconds. I fell down. Very embarrassing. On the descent down the three thousand eight hundred metre mountain. I collapsed. The walk back is across loose rocks, like really chunky gravel. I don't remember if I tripped on one or just felt dizzy and blacked out for a second. Either way, I crumbled down the path, rolling along with the loose rocks, hitting my knees and legs and body. I didn't even realise I was down until I was down. Well, I'm just like so like so lightheaded. Dizziness is one of the main symptoms of altitude sickness. Others include headache, nausea, vomiting, tiredness, loss of appetite and shortness of breath. Theories about challenging yourself and pushing your limits are great, but altitude sickness is a real illness, one that you can't simply overcome with sheer willpower and determination. If the symptoms of altitude sickness are ignored, they can lead to life-threatening conditions, including high-altitude cerebral edema, which is the swelling of the brain caused by a lack of oxygen, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, which is the build-up of fluid in the lungs. Not only were we struggling with altitude sickness, but we were also having some real issues with our tour guides. I was just like a bit concerned and we just had to keep going and going and there was no guides around us. I was like, what the f***, bro? Like, how can you have just like have let us... You're like, okay, walk this way. The guys we were walking with at the start of the trek deserted us. We were a group of 20, maybe, and there were four guides. So we meant to loosely hike in groups of five to be covered by one guide each. Remember, we're on a mountainside in the middle of the Colombian wilderness. Our guides, though, were not there in any official capacity. They were a student who'd grown up here, his friend who'd trained as a nurse, a guy who took photos and a local who ran the hotel. Now look, two of them had good knowledge of the area and landscape. They'd done the hike dozens, if not hundreds of times. But I still didn't trust them. On the first day, we'd been left alone to descend, as three of them rushed ahead to get back to the comfort of the coach, and one remained at the back to make sure any stragglers weren't left behind. They seemed very, very blasé, which is great for calming anxiety, and less so for assessing major health conditions. Then I got really, really sick. After the six hour recreational hike to a peak of 3,800 meters, I couldn't stop throwing up. I 
sent Finley these messages. I was just so sick, I didn't have the energy to talk, let alone make audios. So I've had these robots bring to life the messages I sent. 7 p.m. Andrea Lucia. Just threw up. I don't know if I can come. I am quite ill. 7.10 p.m. Finley. Oh, really? 7.34 p.m. Andrea Lucia. I feel awful. I did feel truly awful. And the next section describes the extreme bodily functions that followed. Skip forward a few minutes to avoid this. Once we'd gotten back from the hike, almost everyone fell asleep. Then an hour later, our guides issued a call to visit a nearby tourist town. Everyone jumped up, but I still felt really, really poorly, so I stayed in bed. My temples felt like they were being screwed tighter and tighter in a vice. Every time I got up, my nausea swelled around in my guts and throat, until finally I rushed to the bathroom. I threw up once in the sink. The grate at the bottom of the sink was so small, uh, my vomit didn't drain, and it just sat there. Realizing this, I veered to my right to aim at the toilet. Before I fully lifted the lid, I threw up again, and with sick down my legs and tears in my eyes, I threw up a final time in the toilet. I choked back my tears and looked about the shared bathroom. It was a total mess. It reeked of stomach acid and every surface was covered with my yellow digestive breakdown. I tried to clean up as best I could with some wet wipes, but nothing worked. I stumbled down to reception and asked for help. Once the worker accompanying me realized the situation, she arrived at the bathroom with a surgical mask, gloves, a mop and broom. Within 10 minutes, while I guiltily hovered by the door, she cleaned everything and refused my tip. A few hours later, while I was still alone, I decided to get some fresh air in the hopes that it would alleviate how diabolical I felt. I walked the 20 metres to the small village plaza and sat there as a talent show for kids took place. On the way back, I ducked behind a tree and in full view of the little children, vomited twice more. That's right, in the middle of a public square. On wobbly legs, I walked back to the hotel and wondered if the locals thought I was some kind of drunk or drugged gringer. I fell asleep. Then at 3am, we were woken up. Everyone had arrived back and I'd slept through it all. But there was no more stalling. It was time to hike El Pulpito del Diablo. to a summit of over 5,000 metres. Despite the constant fear in the back of my mind that I would start deteriorating again. This expedition undoubtedly ranks in the top three hardest things I've ever done in my life. But all those lifestyle gurus had a point. Your capacity for pain increases the more you overcome. As I was walking, I kept imagining myself as a little grey donkey or a little grey burro. Don't ask me why. I don't know. I played Little Donkey in the Christmas school play and it and it jumped into my mind. 
I was taking small but steady steps across the plains and up the cliff face. People rushed by me and chatted and laughed, having great times, but my full capacity was focused on putting one foot in front of the other and trundling up, clip-clopping closer and closer to the vista of a white-peaked summit in the distance. And I made it. The funny thing about this whole experience was that this is my, and was my, vacation. (laughs) I was using my holiday time and my very precious money to put myself through this. I'd chosen this with no idea of what I was getting myself into when I was in decathlon picking out waterproof jackets and cute pink hiking shoes. I've been on many trips this year to cities and towns, beaches and nightclubs, yet this trip burned a place into my psyche that few others have managed, which is funny because it wasn't fun. This trip was not enjoyable or pleasurable. It was not any other synonym that describes having a good time, but it was fulfilling. So I make the distinction between joy and happiness. This is an excerpt from a speech by the author Simon Sinek. The things that you will do, you will not necessarily enjoy. But the question is, do you have a sense that they're a part of something bigger? That's where the, that's where the, the value and the joy comes from. You don't have to like every day, but you do get to love every day. You don't like your children every day, but you love your children every day. Um, don't seek happiness. The happiness will happen here and there. It seek joy. And that comes from relationships and belonging and cause. Cause. That's why I don't regret this trip, despite not skipping along the mountainside with happiness. Conquering extreme sickness. Physical and mental fatigue was an accomplishment I didn't know I could do until I'd done it. To be clear, I would never do that hike again, ever in a million years. If you paid me a million pounds, a billion pounds, I would refuse. Honestly, I'm pretty put off by high altitude mountaineering in general, but I achieved something. And now I know that if I had to, I could just reimagine myself as the little grey donkey and solely focus on putting one foot in front of the other. And as cheesy as it sounds, with that, I kind of feel like I could slowly but surely overcome anything. Part two. Reckless and willing endangerment. As we've mentioned, up in the mountains of the Sierra Nevada del Cocoy lies a summit named El Pulpito del Diablo, or the Devil's Pulpit. The name comes from an ancient legend regarding the devil and his evil misadventures. It is said that at night he would sit atop the snowy rock, his pulpit, and carry out malignant deeds. The cause of thawing ice and subsequent landslides that wrought chaos across the region. The architects of these stories and the original inhabitants of these mountains were and continue to be the Uva people. This is their song and statement. The Uva came into this world to protect it and guard its natural balance. We have one mission, to cherish and protect life. It is their mountain that I had the privilege to summit. 
up towards the devil's pulpit. Super spectacular. <laughs> this is the conversation I had with my tour guide the day before the trek up El Cocoy. I just reached the peak of an acclimatizing hike, and if I sound totally exhausted, it's because I am. Y mañana es mucho más alto que hoy. And tomorrow will we climb much higher? Señora, mañana estamos a 4.800. Hoy estamos acá como a 4.000. Perdón. Yes, today we reached a maximum altitude of 3,900 meters. Tomorrow, we will go up to 4,800 meters. Vale, pero no es un montón más. ¿O sí? Okay, but it's not loads higher, or is it? Siempre. Vale, vale. It is. There's a big difference. Tomorrow we're going up, over there, and he gestures upwards out of view. I don't know if you could tell the answer I was fishing for, but after finishing the quote-unquote recreational hike, I was looking for our guide to tell me that tomorrow wouldn't be that much harder. I mean, it's just a little bit taller. What difference will that really make? Turns out it makes a lot, a lot of difference. So we're officially on the hike to... El Pulpito del Diablo, which is one of the only snowy peaked mountains in Colombia. I mean, I kind of just made that up, but I assume so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't touch the snow here because it's sacred. And the main thing is that it's very, very high up. Finn has a really bad headache. I feel really dizzy. We're probably like distance wise maybe halfway there but in terms of energy wise it's about to get very steep so it's about to get much harder the altitude is like 4,800 meters I think which means vomiting headaches nausea dizziness Oh, and diarrhea. That's the only one I've not had. The nature's really pretty though, if you take a second to look at it. The only problem is me and Finn literally never look at it. We have our heads down the whole time looking at where we're stepping. There's lots of little cactuses about. They look like pineapples almost, with prickly bodies and then a green shoot you out the top bit. How are you doing, Finn? How are you doing? Do you want water? Yeah. Let's just keep going slowly. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I'm trying to sound upbeat, but I'm really nervous. I'm worrying about my shortness of breath and dizziness. I also can't tell if my symptoms are real or if I'm just a hypochondriac imagining things. We're less than halfway there and I'm already really struggling. I'd been violently sick hours before 
and I'm deferring to Finn a lot, my friend on this hike. He likes hiking and outdoorsy stuff and I thought, I'll just rely on him. But even he is starting to feel really rough. Then, the guide in our group that had studied pharmaceuticals walks past and asks how we're doing. We tell him about our headaches. Um, no, yo creo que estoy bien. ¿Lo quieres? It's like dehydration sachets. Then he offers us dehydration sachets to mix into water. No me gusta el sabor, pero funciona muy bien. Sí, claro. Los remedios no tienen que saber bien. Sí, solo tienen que funcionar. I tell him I don't like the taste. As a joke. And he replies, well, that's not the point of medicine, is it? My stellar sense of humour clearly does not translate. Vale, pues muchísimas gracias. And with that, he gives us a once-over and leaves. We're less than halfway there, and it's already hard. But I'd paid to come on this trip. I took out holiday time and bought bright pink hiking boots. I've already come far to decide there's no way I'm bailing now. The group is moving forwards. So step by step, pasito a pasito, I commit to getting there. I think we'll make it there. Like, the, like we get closer every time. That doesn't feel that far away. We're like two mountains away. Maybe I'm deluded, but I don't think it's that far. So we're on our way up. The path runs along the side of the grey mountain. Our left side is protected from wind by the mountain face, but our right side is totally exposed and gets a lashing from the gales. Down below, the river, whose source is the glacier at the peak where we're headed, roars on. As I approach it to draw some water, I get into the cutest exchange with a 30-year-old vet who forms part of our walking group. Has visto nieve antes? She's never seen snow before. Today will be her first time. She won't be allowed to touch it. It's illegal here in Alcacoy out of respect for the indigenous people who believe it's sacred. So I try and describe the sensation to her. It's a little like paper. Yes, there are various layers. I don't know how to say it. Yes, It's like a stack of paper, I tell her, with... With lots of layers, anyway. So I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and just so beaten down. But I feel a little bit invigorated because I'm just able right now to fill up my water bottle with a little river that is running off from the glacier all the way up the top of the mountain. So I'm currently drinking glacier water, which I've never done before. And is very cool to me. You have to be careful when filling up your water bottle at the river to not get wet or fall in. But it's worth it. It's this crystal clear liquid that doesn't require any filtration and tastes great. If a little cold. Then, a few hours later, I realised that I lost my jacket. I can't believe I lost my jacket. I think I took all the stuff. I think I felt really bad at one point. And I sat down and I took all the stuff out of my bag. Because I was looking for something. I think it must have been then that I forgot to put it back inside. 
Was that after you took the photo? Yeah, it was after the lake, for sure. Uh, I think it was after he gave you the um the the powder as well. Because that's when you were feeling quite bad. I think it was we weren't together, maybe. There was some there was a point where I felt awful. I must I think I lost it there. So what's happening here? The fact that I sat down on a rock and just left my jacket, an essential part of kit to hike up a cold mountain towards a glacier, is not just my own unique brand of idiocy and forgetfulness. The brain, particularly the hippocampus and other areas within the limbic system, is very sensitive and vulnerable to hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen caused by circumstances such as high-altitude exposure. This exposure has a detrimental effect on cognitive functions, causing slower reaction times, reduced psychomotor vigilance, reduced sustained attention, impaired learning, impaired spatial and working memory, and impaired memory retrieval. You essentially become a dumb version of yourself, which is why I had sat down on a rock, inexplicably took off most of my layers and emptied my backpack, only to get everything together again and leave my jacket, one of the most important objects I had, on that rock, without realising or then remembering how or why it happened. The brain's vulnerability to high altitudes is an attributable cause of death for many climbers around the globe and also here in El Cocoy. Hola, buenas noches. Hace pocos minutos el director de Socorro de la Cruz Roja en el departamento de Boyacá confirmó la muerte de Andrés Díaz Castro, un fotógrafo profesional y además un montañista experimentado quien había llegado el pasado 5 de enero al Parque Nacional de El Cocuy. Allá en el cuerpo sin vida del turista que había desaparecido en el nevado del Cocuy, el cadáver será llevado a Bucaramanga, de donde era oriundo. Y hace pocas horas fue encontrado el cuerpo de un escalador que fue reportado como desaparecido el pasado 5 de enero en el nevado del Cocuy en Boyacá. These were just a few of the news bulletins that reported the deaths of tourists and experienced mountaineers attempting to summit routes in El Cocoy. While I was researching the data on deaths in this national park, one story in particular struck me. So I'm in my office trying to look up statistics on deaths on El Cocoy, the mountain range in general, deaths on the climb that I did in particular. From what I can find, there is no accessible database for me to figure out the number of deaths that have been on Alcocoy. I can't tell if this is a statistic that the government keeps, if I just can't find it. Um, in English, there are no, there are no records at all. It just comes up with lots of tourist pages. Um, in Spanish, you get a bunch of news articles regarding people who have died, but it will be, for example, I've got one up now. It's the 31st of October, 2015. And it's about a tourist that died. I can find lots of these individual news stories, but I'm struggling to find how many people die on El Cocoy every year. It's really difficult. And I'm not sure if there's the infrastructure in place that logs how many people are dying and the means in which they die. This is the story of a young guy, um, 27 years old, called Reno. David Cristancho Ramirez. Sorry, I was focused on the news article and not my pronunciation, but out of respect, his name was Reynel Cristancho. 
on the 28th of June, 2015, he tried to climb in Alcacoy. He did the same, the same route that I did. Um, he got about 4,500 meters high. Um, he went with a group of, a group of people. Sorry if I'm reading this quite slowly. I'm translating in real time from Spanish to English. His body was found five months after he went missing. Um, basically what happened is that Raynal, um, went on the hike with four women and two men. Uh, they decided to go up and try and summit. The climate conditions were a bit difficult and they found it very hard and challenging the hike. So the women opted to turn back. One of them's quoting as saying, we had terrible headaches and the cold and breeze were horrific. So we stopped to rest and then Raynal, the guy who went missing, decided to carry on going up. We shouted at him to stop, but he didn't hear us uh, or he didn't listen to us. And he continued the hike. We were really ill. So we decided to return and wait for him to come back. Uh, that same Sunday at 6 p.m. in the afternoon, authorities started looking for him because... Raynal, the guy in question, never returned. Uh, the search party lasted a week. And then they, the authorities told friends of the victim that they no longer had any more resources. And bit by bit, they stopped searching for him. Uh, about five months passed. And then the day before this news article was released, they called the family and let them know that they'd found the dead body. So that's the story of Raynal David Cristancho Ramirez, who was 27 and who died in 2015 doing the same hike that I did. Um, there's a picture of him from the day he went missing. The hike is not a super technical hike. So he's just sat on a rock staring into the camera with a beanie, a scarf around his neck and he's, and he's wearing jeans. Um, and he went missing and never came back. Because of what happens to victims like Reynel, there are regulations in place that state that tourists are prohibited from entering the national park without a guide. However, these rules were in place before 2015, the year Reynel went missing. So while the rules do exist, they're not enforced, which is what I also discovered. It's the final hour, supposedly, or hour and a half. It's now extremely steep. I'm going to take short, tiny steps and not get too tired out because we're going up about... It's 400 meters in the space of a really short time, so slow and steady. Soon we'll be at the glacier. We can't touch the snow, but we'll see the snow. Last stretch. This is the last audio I have from my attempt to summit. 
What happened next didn't really allow for me to engage in recording audio. The final stretch I'm on is extremely steep at about a 50 degree angle, I'd say. It's tiring, but I feel good. My friend Finley, who I'd come with, however, wasn't doing as well. We're the last group, so there's no one behind us. I stick with the main pack and walk up and over the now massive boulders in our path. As we continue, though, Finley ducks out of sight. Several times while taking our breaks, he comes back into view, way behind the rest. He's been suffering from a pounding headache and dizziness for about four hours now. The problem is when he arrives into view, our leader takes that as a chance to end our break and continue the hike, which inevitably means Finley doesn't get to stop with us and fatigues even further. Twice, I shout out to the guide ahead of us to stop. I'm worried about losing Finlay. When I look over the edge and try to spot him, everything around me swirls. I feel like I could just fall over the boulder I'm on and tumble down the valley as if in a retro cartoon. I know if I'm not really in my right mind, Finn must be much worse. Eventually, we reach a ridge, three quarters of the way up. As we all sit, our guide walks back down to talk to Finn, who was well below us. Eventually, the guide reappears, alone. You should talk to your friend, the guide says. What? I respond. I'm confused. He doesn't want to walk anymore. He can sit here and wait for us. What? I repeat. This time, though, I'm more agitated. I don't get a response. After a while, Finn emerges. I talk to him. He lets me know how bad he feels and that he doesn't think he can go on. But look, we're three quarters of the way there. We'd already walked six hours and we're now 200 meters away from summiting. I have no intention of quitting this close. And that's what I say. Eventually, I leave him and continue walking up. For the next half an hour, this cycle continues. Finn lags behind. I tell him to carry on. We're so close to the top. Until finally, we make it. We reach the peak that my eyes had been drilling into for the past six hours. I wish I could tell you of the glorious views across the valley that we see. The reality is that while you can see small stretches of land down below, we're so high up that most of the view is just thick white clouds, which is still pretty cool. So, while lying across this flat rock, I ask our guide how far the snow is, and he tells me that while we're at the top, we now have to walk laterally, that is, across the peak, for an hour to get to the glacier. I try and compute what he's saying. There's no way I can drag Finn across the top for another hour, even if it is a flat walk. So, I ask him what our options are. He can sit here and wait for us. This... This line again, I am so confused. Does he mean that we should leave a member of our team who is not in his right mind to sit on the peak of an exposed mountain in the freezing cold with the full force winds hitting him for two hours until we return? Apparently, yes. I try to haggle with him, but he explains that he can't leave this group to go ahead alone. I ask if there is any other option. Surely they prepare for this. Of course, some people can't complete the hike. There must be a plan. Of course, 
there isn't. I sit on the rock for a minute, trying to hide the fact that I'm on the verge of tears and internally having a panic attack from how out of control this all feels. For the final time, I reiterate to our guide that I can't just leave my friend behind. Sighing, he gives me an emergency tinfoil blanket and then begins to lead the rest of the group up and away into the mountains. We are left totally alone, 5,000 meters up. Very few times in my life have I been genuinely afraid for my life. Like, scared that I could actually die. I mean, that's obvious. Why would I have been in many of those scenarios? But but here I am. And I'm unprepared and terrified. What do you imagine a hike up a mountain to look like? If you'd asked me to draw one before this, I would sketch a nice established footpath that leads to a summit's triangular peak with a strong, smiley man. The reality of this hike is that the peak of the mountain is made up of massive grey boulders. There is no visible path, just these giant rocks that we'd scrambled up behind our guide. Now looking down at the site ahead, it's nothing but daunting. There's no visible wearing down of the rocks, no clear path, except the valley floor ahead of us. Slowly, we begin to slide down the rocks. There's nothing to grip onto and haul yourself over as with going up. You just have to hope that when you're sliding over the edge and jumping off these boulders, gravity won't pull you too far and cause you to tumble down into the valley. We also have no idea what rocks are firm and which are superficial. Loose rocks that could crush us or fall out from beneath us as we land. This all may sound melodramatic, but take a listen again to one of the news stories that covered a death on El Cocoy. Familiares dieron detalles de cómo encontraron al bumangués de 27 años. Family members tell the story of how the Bucaramanga native was found. Lo encontró un turista estadounidense y le tomó una foto. An American found him and took a photo. Aparentemente fue por por una caída en una grieta. Apparently, his death was caused falling through a crack in the rocks. These boulders and the attempts to traverse them have taken lives. As we clamber down, Finn sways, still sick. We move in silence. Then, it starts to rain. The only thing that could possibly make this descent worse. Now we're contending with slippery rocks and mud as we lower ourselves down on a Colombian mountainside, totally alone. But there is no remedy. There is no one coming to save us. Both of us, despite losing much of our other mental capacities, know this. So we stop for no breaks and continue to scrape our way down the rock. You'd think this routine would become less terrifying after a while, but it doesn't. I have anxiety and I'm known to catastrophize. So, as we traverse, my head is flooding with thoughts. If Finn collapses or falls, I can't drag us both down. What is the quickest way to get help? Would I stay with him or go back up or down? What if we're taking the wrong route down and get lost? The tour lady said the worst thing you can do is leave your tour And on and on and on. Then, 
after what feels like hours of constant fear, as we jump down from rock to rock, we reach more vegetation and less boulders. Before long, we reach where we'd stopped for a snack before the final steep climb. In this little glade of grass, flowers and vegetation grow easier, away from the cold, dry, high altitude. Up above, the summit hides, totally shrouded by the white clouds. Despite reaching safer ground, I feel little relief. There's about a seven-hour journey back that we still have to make. Though, Finn does seem improved. The best cure for altitude sickness really is to just go down. We sit for maybe two minutes. I pee behind some bushes, then we decide to continue alone rather than wait the two hours for a group to catch up with us. We can stop for longer once we have water. Once the river is in sight and I have a better sense of where we are, my sense of humour returns a little bit. I deem my life to be out of danger and I determine that now that I'm not on the brink of extinction, I can podcast. So, let me catch you up, dear listener, as to where I am now. We attempted to ascend. We did reach the top of the mountain, but we were not able to walk across the devil's pulpit because my friend's head, he said it felt like it was about to explode. And I had been suppressing the fact that I was coming in and out of consciousness, like fainting, being super drowsy and wondering, I could just fall over this and die. And I've been feeling that for like an hour. So the guide said, he gave us two options, kind of. He was like, your friend, because I told him I was basically confined to continue. He said, your friend can stay here on the side of this exposed cliff all by himself until the until we come back or he can carry on with us I was like this goes against every single rule of this national park you're literally not allowed to leave um, not the guests I'm not sure what we're called the clients by themselves because it's pretty dangerous the big national park when we had our we had to have like an induction talk and the woman was like never ever leave your guide people that leave their guides bad things happen thankfully they sometimes make it back to the outhouse but sometimes they don't so it was like high stakes (laughs) and then so he basically was just like I was like well I can go back with him and we can just walk the route back without realising that this rule of not leaving clients by themselves was was made for a good reason because we got lost like five times coming down these really unfriendly boulders just massive crawling like with your butt across it it wasn't fun at all and the whole time I was like if we don't have a radio my phone has no data if one of us slips and hits our head or something we literally have the other one to rely on and I can't carry my mate and he probably can't carry me so currently continuing to walk back so even though I never got to see the glacier water I am coming back up to the stream so I'll get to drink a little bit more glacier water nice doing a hike like this is such an exercise in self-development this audio is being recorded less than an hour after I was sliding down loose and fragile boulders in the rain. In an extremely nerve-wracking activity, 
on the side of a 5,000 meter mountain. Yet here I am, pretty upbeat, using the term noise as a fully grown adult. All that is left of this hike now is to overcome. There is no other option and no other choice. The hardest part should be over. Now all that is left is to stick to the path and keep plugging on. On the way down, we took in the nature. I wouldn't describe it as a hiker's high. We were exhausted and still had hours of hiking ahead of us. But we kept commenting on the beauty of the nature around us and even stopped for a photo shoot in the rust-coloured grass of the marshes with its weird and wonderful cactus-slash-aloe vera-looking sunflowers. The scenery gets less dry as you descend. There is still lots of grey rock, but the green is beautiful, the flowers prickly, little survivors. For two people from the UK, it reminded us of our cold, damp climate. The sweeping swathes of green in the valleys and the massive bushes and shrubs were otherworldly versions of home. It began to rain heavily again, and the 8th, ninth, and 10th hours of the hike were carried out in wet darkness. Then we reached the end. The car park. There is no cafe or hot drinks in the outhouse at the end of the hike. This is not a luxury or well-established tourist hotspot. We climbed onto the coach, wet and shivering. The kind bus drivers offered us a spare blanket and we fell totally asleep while waiting for the rest of our group to return. Soon 4pm turned to 5pm, the designated cutoff point after which hikers must not be in the national park for their own safety. Five turned to six, and from 7pm onwards, in dribs and drabs, people began to return. At 7.30, a man barreled onto the bus, scared and alone. It's not logical, Martin. There were two guides. Uno con los de One of them should have gone with the group up front. But the other should have waited for me, given that the next group was so far behind. Nothing and nobody, and it was getting dark. It seems our guides had left more than just me and Finn to fend for ourselves. Past the 5pm cutoff point, when alarm bells are supposed to begin ringing, this man had been left wandering about in the darkness, alone and without a guide. I was like a madman trying to shout ahead at the two guides. Emil Iberio, I don't know where I'm going. Turn on a light or a torch to let me know if I'm on the right path. Gracias a Dios. Thank God that in the distance I could hear a dog. When I started heckling, a man came out of his house and told me where to go. This tour group that most of us had found through adventurous Instagram pictures and glowing Facebook reviews had accepted our 800,000 pesos, about 190 pounds, and thrown us in the deep end. We had excitedly signed up for a tour of reckless and willing endangerment. In the last hour of the day, I lay in bed and reflected on the whirlwind that had felt like a lifetime, but only lasted a day. So it's the evening of the big hike up El Cocoy. I'm like with a tour group and they've all gone out 
to go to some thermal hot springs and I'm in bed. It's 9.52 and I'm exhausted. Today was really hard. We kept saying over and over again, this isn't fun, but I suppose it's fulfilling. And there were several parts, but that was just so, so difficult. The reason there's so few voice notes is just because I think when things are really difficult, you don't really have time to indulge a hobby like this. You're just trying to, in some ways, survive. And we had some complaints about about how it was organised and when we were sat on the coach, a guy barreled through the doors and essentially gave the same complaint that me and my mate had, which was that the guides had totally just deserted most of us. <laughs> which is very suspect and, I don't know, dangerous. Like, on our way down, we had to scramble down all these boulders, which is totally without a guide, without internet or anything. And we were just like, if we slip down these boulders, we're dead. We're just, we're just dead. Or if we were to, like, because we were so drowsy and out of it, if we had veered off onto the wrong path, well, what would have happened then? We got up at 3am and we didn't get back till at about 6.30 or 7 so that shows you how long the day was it was such a long hike so physically demanding my friend said <laughs> my friend said he considers it a near death experience which I think is pushing it a bit far but also it was extremely difficult and they've all gone out to the hot springs and I'm in bed and I can't fall asleep because they're all going to come back and wake me up. So I'm just in bed trying to not fall asleep watching YouTube videos on my data. <laughs> I can so easily picture myself as I mumbled this voice note into my mic. A tired, short and skinny woman that likes watching YouTube videos. By all accounts, an unextraordinary person. But this small woman, whose height barely scrapes 5'3", and who isn't known for any particular fitness prowess, scaled a 5,000-metre mountain. Someone that studied languages and literature in university and grew up in the concrete jungle of London, jumped and crawled across wet boulders on the Colombian mountainside. Someone that automatically deferred to their friend because he seemed stronger and more outdoorsy, wound up actually protecting him. I say this not to blow my own horn, but to demonstrate the capacity of the human spirit. I'm not special, no more than anyone else, but I was left in a situation of real danger, out of my control, on the side of an ancient mountain range, and I overcame. When there is no other option, you would be amazed at what a simple person, what you or I can overcome. Whatever that may be, completing a marathon, running 23 kilometers, or going on a first date after months of being single, doing a gruelling multi-day hike in a far-off land, or working up the courage to change career paths. Everything you need to overcome, I bet you already have. Just take little steps, pasito a pasito, and keep going. No one else is coming to save you. 
That's it. That's the episode on El Cocoy in the Sierra Nevada in Colombia. Significantly more dramatic than I expected uh, one boring Tuesday scrolling through expeditions when I ought to have been teaching English abroad. Uh, moving on, you've been listening to Wherever Island. If you are my employer, I'm a very dedicated English teacher. And if you are everyone else, I am a journalist. And this is an independent production created by me, Andrea Alicia Peters. If you would like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do this. Firstly, and most importantly, it's just dropping the link in a group chat that you're in or telling your friends and family. Obviously, recommendations I listen to more when they're from someone you know more deeply. So do that if you're interested and if you enjoyed it. If not, maybe leave an iTunes review. This lets people know that you enjoyed the show. And if it's funny or entertaining, maybe I'll read it out on this podcast and you can be immortalized here. Even if it's bad, as long as you make fun of me, I'll probably still include you. And if you don't want to do any of that, you can, of course, head over to our social medias or website to look at pictures if you want to ruin the mental image you've created in your mind, which, of course, I love to do. And maybe you do, too. And that's it. That is a wrap on this episode. As usual, I've not planned where I'm going next time. Who knows wherever I might land. Bye.